This is an ABC podcast. Hold it. Just slow down. Yes, this week on Download This Show, calls to stop developing artificial intelligence for six months. Services like ChatGPT, the website where you can get it to rewrite and answer just about anything. But what difference would six months really make anyway? Plus, the makers of TikTok are facing bans left, right and centre, but their new app is proving to be a massive hit. But exactly what is it? And what does it take to get suppressed on Twitter? Well, now we know how... Get set to find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. I guess this week, Natasha Gillazo, journalist extraordinaire... That's right. I made you an extraordinary... I don't know what it means. Glad to have you <laughs> I'll here. I'll take it. <laughs> Welcome to the show. And Crikey Associate Editor, also don't know what it means, uh, Cam Wilson. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. The pleasure is entirely mine. And no AI for you for the next six months <laughs> okay. appears to be the ruling that's come from several high-powered tech gurus. Uh, Cam, Elon Musk has joined uh, a few different voices in the tech industry who've said, hey, can we just maybe, you know slow down with the development of Skynet? Walk me through what's happened. Yeah, so a uh, institute called, I think, the Future of Life Institute put out a open letter saying, hey, generative AI, it's going crazy. Open AI's chat GPT uh, and GPT-4, the new model, are very advanced. We're worried about how all of this is going to affect people in the future, how it's going to affect how we live, how it's going to affect how we work. Uh, will it potentially you know, drive us closer to some kind of apocalypse? And so as a result, they've said, let's take a pause for six months specifically on training AI models uh, that are more complex than GPT-4. So again, this the one that's getting all the attention. Uh, while we take some time to think about it, get some policies in place for how to put safeguards around it, do some research about how it's going to affect our lives um, before things get too crazy. Now, has anybody at all in the universe responded to this with, yeah, sure, why not? It's kind of tricky. I think it's kind of I guess I want to call out the binary that's sort of starting to emerge, which is the like AI is dangerous. It's an existential threat to humanity kind of crisis. And I think in the open letter, like these Americans are sort of casting themselves as like Iron Men who've discovered something in the lab. On the same day, you get the UK government put out a white paper, which is talking about innovation with very much a Tom Brady LFG style approach where it proposes like this light touch regulations and warn uh, warns against unnecessary burdens that could stifle innovation. To me, it's just crazy that these two universes are operating in tandem. Um, so I think it's just interesting to call out that US and UK distinction, at least at this point in time. I see this letter more as a symbol, not really as a realistic act. It's very hard to get an industry to sort of down its tools. I think it's more a canary in a coal mine type symbol than something that can actually happen because you can't tell people to just stop researching unless like with great force. And I don't think that force really exists here. So what would six months actually mean though, Cam? Like realistically, I mean, it's firstly, it's not, I don't actually think it's a thing that's going to happen, but, but what would six months difference make is the argument. 
They've come up with a few suggestions of things that they want people to do. Some research for governments to start creating bodies to develop regulations around it. Um, but six months, I think, is just kind of a number that's plucked out of the air. And I think it's kind of interesting because it's, it seems like it's a substantial amount of time. But I think it is, like Natasha said, very like uh, symbolic. And, and interesting, I think, what it says about like what it's actually indicating, which is like we want to deal with these long-term problems that are in the future – one of the criticisms I saw of the letter was that we actually have a lot of problems here right now that already exist with AI. You know, on the show, I've heard, Mark, you talk about things like, you know, facial recognition, things like RoboDebt, a very basic use of like algorithms. This idea that we should, you know, we've got these huge existential threats from AI, I think is almost overblown. And some people have even critiqued it almost as like promoting AI as in like, it is so powerful that we need to stop ourselves from this, you know, apocalypse, which is subtly saying that it is an incredible technology, which it totally is. But in a way, like, uh, is it this over-egging it versus actually what the issues that we could be dealing with right now? It allows us to avoid the possibility that perhaps AI can also be solutions to problems as well. Like if you've got six months of people to, to kind of catch up and to to learn it. I mean, there's a huge, this weird um, burgeoning industry of like chat GPT AI whisperers I've noticed on social media who are like, who are like teaching people how to give AI the right kind of prompt to get the right kind of response. And it's fast. It's like a whole new job that's mm. emerged in a matter of weeks, prompt right? Prompt engineers. Prompt engineers. It's a, I mean, it's not as nonsense as associated, <laughs> but I will say it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> it has sort of given rise to almost, you know, new jobs of sorts. And I think if, you know, I guess my sort of reaction to it is like, well, it, it operates from a starting position that AI is inherently, and this speaks to what you were saying earlier, is, is inherently a good or bad thing. But mm. actually, in reality, it's going to be a bit of both, right? Definitely. Um, I think the, yeah, it's kind of interesting, the sort of new new jobs or new relationships to AI. I think with ChatGPT in particular, the way that Sam Altman and OpenAI have approached it is they're sort of doing what in product management land, we would call user testing, but in this really public <laughs> live way. I know user testing, I hate the term, only you know people who are addicted to drugs are called users, but when people test software, that's what you're called when you give feedback. Um, and it, it allows people from the outside world to kind of like throw things back. And it's just interesting because it's like that happens all the time. It just happens on a more private, closed way. But ChatGPT, like everyone on the internet is a user giving live feedback, pointing things out. And it's sort of taken what was a software process that used to sort of happen behind closed doors and made it really, really public and international in ways that, I don't know, there might be some positives to that, to be honest, because it's it's sort of a weird way of getting more people involved in pointing out some of the flaws in the system and yeah, obviously very imperfect, but I think that's part of what's happening there. No, should you go. I was going to say, I think the way that it has been launched actually kind of has been kind of democratic because, you know, like a lot of the way that you see tech that is going to affect workplaces rolled out is that it goes to the bosses, the managers who then kind of, you know, sign contracts or whatever. Whereas this has kind of been the other way around. Like I've been speaking to people, just ordinary workers who've taken it upon themselves to try out ChatGPT and figure out how can this actually make my life 
easier. And, you know, a great example was teachers. You know, they said every for, for every like subject and every class, I've got to come up with these, you know, assessment rubrics and that takes ages. And already many of them were either essentially copying old ones, buying ones off the internet. They're like, now I can just generate one really quickly and then, you know, touch it up. Um, amend it. Yeah. Amend it. Yeah. And I think this is like, it's, it's interesting that the way, and, you know, other people have said similar things about their specific jobs. I don't think it's going to replace entirely a whole lot of jobs because it's still, you know, although it is very impressive, it still does not replace kind of domain expertise. You know, we've heard a lot about how these products can hallucinate. What I do think it, it can do is be a really interesting assistant. And I like the way that it's come out that people have figured out how to incorporate it into their own jobs, get rid of some of the boring stuff that actually doesn't take a whole lot of brain power that then frees them up to do other things. Like teachers said, to create more um, engaging and interesting classes rather than just having to do the same thing over and over because of the busy work that has now been replaced. Hypothetically, if there was to be a six-month ban and, and we all collectively, seven billion of us, used that time to come up with guidelines for how we did and didn't want to interact with AI, uh, AI things like your chat GPTs, what are the sorts of guidelines, Nat, that you would put in place? Like, uh, It doesn't mm. have to be like exhaustive here, but uh, like, yeah. just off the top of your head, are there things you'd like, I think that should be a guiding principle for how we interact with this thing that probably isn't going to disappear? I think they should be really general and easy to remember. I think there'd be a temptation to try and like think through every single scenario and plan for all of that. I don't think that would work from a quick implementation. It'd like be like, what would be like the three rules of thumb of AI that every engineer could Mm -hmm. like lodge in their brain and as they're building it, they go, no, this breaches that. Kind of like red light, yellow light, green light. I think there would be a temptation to make it really complicated Mm. and to, you know, do the corporations act of AI and be like every single director's duty, this scenario, this scenario. I I don't think that would be a good idea, at least in a six-month period. So maybe like a Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, like a Hippocratic Oath vibe. Like, so it's like when you're on the job and you're in like the line of fire, you can, you sort of, you have this like code of ethics that you've internalized. You brought up RoboDebt earlier, Mm. which is a really salient example. And, you know, if we're talking about the the Hippocratic Oath, it's the one part that everybody remembers, doctor or nay, is the do no harm part. Do you think something as simple and as general as that could work in the construct of AI? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the one that I was thinking of is to do around privacy and the data that's been used to train these models. You know, the... the, um, the example of Italy banning chat GPT is kind of over, partly over the fact that there was a glitch that allowed people to see other people's searches. And as we know, people have been putting very private information into this, you know, ranging from like just talking about themselves and their emotions to actual like medical information, probably wouldn't advise that, but this is one of the, um, like that's what it's exposing people to. But then there's the other side that these models have been trained on these enormous like corpuses of data that's been scraped from the, from the internet. And in fact, with uh, GPT-4, the latest one released by open source uh, by OpenAI, I think it's actually the first one where they haven't let people know exactly what it's been trained on. Mm. I think people should have the right to, one, be able to identify if their information already has been included in these huge models, and then secondly, be able to get their information taken out of there because at the moment they can't even see if it's in there, but it could be used to you know guide other people's decisions, uh, which could affect them in the future. It's a really interesting point. Like my... I've been playing a lot with ChatGPT recently and the, the it's brilliant in many ways. Like it's, it's absolutely brilliant. But one of my first sort of interactions with it was just sort of in, just slinging it with a bunch of questions, almost like Google searches. And it just got so much wrong, like wrong. Like I wouldn't trust ChatGPT with a fact, like I wouldn't. But the really intriguing part for me was 
when I realized it was doing wrong things or it was returning wrong pieces of information, I was like, so where are you getting your information from? Like, where is this coming? And it, it, I got stonewalled by a robot. It was like, it gave me nothing. And I was like, I remember that feeling quite destabilizing. Because on the one hand, you're having this, what feels like a very high level, very fluent conversation with a piece of technology. And then you- And re- then it just shuts you down. It shuts yeah. you down. That's so interesting. I mean, one of the things there, like all the date, this is also like, this exists outside AI and we're now not talking about guiding principles. We're talking about something different, which is how humans interact with machines. But there's like a well-known heuristic that people think that machines, if information or interaction comes from a machine, it's more objective, it's more reliable, it's somehow better. But if it comes from a human, so that's why Google is used to settle debates, right? Yeah. Because it's kind of like a way of being like, and it genuinely can, but that is... That's that's wrong. Like sometimes humans do know better and they can make a better call. Um, so that, you know. For the moment. <laughs> yeah. for, for, for the moment, right. Um, but And obviously it depends on the scenario, but it's like I think that's also maybe an education piece. Like what do we bring to these machines and what kind of cognitive biases do we bring to these machines and being not, not even just sceptical of the AI, but just understanding like fundamentally you trust this thing more than a human for whatever weird reason, it's a thing that's built into the way your psychology works, but you need to like take a step back. It's like a new chapter in media literacy. <laughs> well, it is. Yeah, 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 exactly. I also think that it, there is a change in um, how how these machines work in terms of search engines to AI, although now they're kind of intertwined, which is that when you search for something, of course, you get sent to other places that are primary sources. On the principles, though, I will say one more thing, and I think that it's like in if you had the six months to write them, I think you need to take a step back from the technology that already exists because it's very tempting to kind of be like, how would we regulate ChatGPT or how would we regulate the image generator or Cicero? But it's like, no, you need to think about like all the possible scenarios rather than just like get bogged down in what's sort of on the market right now. We were talking earlier about different jobs and different sort of uh, industries that are bubbling up around this. One of the other things, Cam, is that now there's a real concern that AI can do all these things. It can write code. It can also then hack. And mm. then how do you defend yourself against uh, against hacking AI? So, Cam, how does one defend themselves <laughs> against hacking AI? I don't know. Surely there's like a anti-hacking AI? That must be the answer. Um, I think it's, it's like a- alien versus predator, <laughs> like two AIs going against each other. Whoever wins, we lose. I think that, I mean, my understanding of it is that still like hacking AI and the idea that that could be used is always going to be behind uh, humans doing it because at the end of the day, this requires like a certain level of like I guess, inquisitive nature that you can, you can look at it yourself and creativity and that kind of stuff. And uh, AI for the most part, just kind of like rehashes things that have happened in the past. So I don't like, I think there has been some kind of talk about that. I don't, I think that might be just, again, you know, uh, ring alarm bells that might not be super relevant. I think just like the bigger thing is, is generally like, before we worry about that, having general cybersecurity to keep out like, you know, normal hackers, we can worry about super AI in the future. All right. There's obviously a lot more to discuss in AI. We will be discussing it in the coming weeks. I'd say that's safe to say. But for now, it's time to move on. This is Download This Show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Natasha Gillizzo, journalist, and Cam Wilson, Crikey Associate Editor. And as of March 31st, 2023, we can now lift up the lid underneath Twitter and see exactly how it works. Um, Nat, so (laughs) this is a fascinating one. Twitter obviously has been in the news a lot over the last two years, three years. You know what? All of the years. 
But now they've decided to make their algorithm, the thing, the engine that works uh, underneath it, open source, which means we can now look and see all kinds of things, what it is you can tweak that's going to get you more engagement, what sorts of people are being suppressed. Out of all of this, what is the most interesting thing that took your interest? Ooh, I think probably the fact that engaging tweets like have more salience than likes and retweets. So obviously something's changed. Like that that must be like a new addition in the algorithm at a certain point, because I think at a certain point in time on Twitter, if a tweet got like tons and tons of likes, that would be prioritized in the newsfeed. So there's been a switch where they're obviously trying to, or the engineers or the product managers or whoever have made a decision to be like, oh, it's better for the people who like use Twitter if we prioritize a tweet that's what they call engaging. It doesn't necessarily mean good because engaging could mean emotive or explosive, but I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, huh, okay. So it's not just about how many people follow you. It's not just about pure metrics. It's about when you put something out in the world, what kind of spark does it make? Yeah, exactly. But there's like engaging... Yeah, how many people like clicked on it at a certain point of time. It's also whether it has like a picture or a video, they like that. There's quite a bunch of inputs into this algorithm. I thought this was super interesting, especially like the background on this is like there's been calls for social giants to share their algorithms. And originally they've kind of said some version of like, no freaking way, that's our secret source. Like, But the fact that Twitter has made this public, I think is... um an interesting moment in time for that chip. I think so. I mean, for years, I mean, for well over a decade, there's been a, a whole profession in just like guessing the Facebook <laughs> algorithm, right? For now to have one of these companies go, do you know what? Just have a look. Just you, you, you see. Cam, what was the most interesting thing that you discovered? I do think that some of the kind of like the, the warts that came out from people looking at it were interesting. Like I saw that. Well, like what? There was a some code in there that was specifically broke down users into normal users, Republicans, Democrats, and Elon Musk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Is that a joke? Is yeah, that, that, no, 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 really. It, this came out soon afterwards. What? Elon Musk was on a Twitter space. Apparently, he didn't know about it. He asked an engineer. They said that this were, was for internal tracking metrics. So we can see how, you know, you're performing. We can see how politicians are performing. But I think that there's been a lot of reporting around the fact that Elon Musk is very sensitive about his metrics on, on, on Twitter. And as a result, you know, at times he's there was reporting that, for example, he tweeted something about the Super Bowl and so did Joe Biden at the same time, but Joe Biden got more engagement. So he 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 kind of uh, he did a like Slack at all. So like essentially gave a notification to everyone in the company saying like this needs to be fixed. Someone needs to boost my um, my appearance in the algorithm. So I, I think there's a variety of explanations. Now, one thing we did learn, Nat, is that there is one way of making sure that you get favourable treatment, and that's by being a Twitter Blue member. This is the paid for service. I guess it's not shocking, but I kind of, yeah, no, actually, I guess it's just not shocking, really, <laughs> is it? Uh, yeah, like, I, I wasn't entirely surprised that a paying customer and a now they're, like, seen as customers get sort of boosted or rewarded for for being a paid member. I mean, the analogy is sort of like being a VIP member at a club, like, you you know, you might get a discount on your drink or something. It's like, like the bottle you know, some of kind of, some kind of like marginal benefit that's not crazy better than the rest of the experience, but is, is better. Yeah. I think if anyone came out and was like, Twitter blue subs get boosted, shocker. It's like, but if, I guess it's like worth debating, like, I don't know if that's clear when you sign up to Twitter blue. I'm not an avid Twitter user. So I don't know if when you pay for it, they're like, 
have your tweets seen by oh, more people. Oh, you mean people. you value your mental health then? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a good call. <laughs> um, Look, actually, what is interesting is that they they actually lay out um, just how much weight some of these things have. So is that, you know, the favourable treatment you get for being a Twitter Blue member is nothing compared to the unfavourable uh, treatment you get if, for example, somebody hits uh, show less often or reports your tweet. Like the the down weighting on that is massive. Which yeah, I, you don't want to get blocked apparently. No, mm. and part of me is just like, good. Mm. <laughs> like that's how it should be. I think the interesting part about opening this up is now how are people going to respond to this? We spoke about the kind of social media strategists in the past who've tried to define the strategy. One of the reasons that the other companies have not put this out has been not just, you know, it's our secret source, but also that we fear that people will try and manipulate this now that they know exactly how it works. So people wouldn't be manipulating it anyway. They just were doing it in the dark. Yeah, I, but I yeah, think... gaming the algorithm is not a new idea, totally. right? But I think the difference is that now that... I mean, like, we do know that the other companies change algorithms all the time, and part of that is to kind of keep things fresh so you can't always game it. Mm. Now we know what it is. And so, for example, one of the things that lets you get your content amplified and see by more people is if someone looks at your tweet and then goes to your profile, they click on your name. So will people now be like, well, how can I figure out cheap and, and you know sneaky ways of getting people to look at my profile? It's more it, shameless now though. Remember the days of social media when it was kind of seen as cringy to try and game the algorithm where it's, I feel like I've seen Twitter threads that are like, here's how to game the algorithm. Like it's almost like people instruct, I mean, you, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like the social media experts who then advise on it. Um, I think that, it's just interesting to shift, like that cultural shift from it being like, oh, you don't want to, you know, to people being like, literally, how do I mm. get my stuff seen on this platform? Yeah, I, it seems, I think I, one of the reasons why I sort of, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter <laughs> is that I feel like anything you tweet that involves an opinion, you essentially need to clear a day to deal with the moderation of such a thing. And I can't, there's a part of me that's like, I, I want to make an informed choice. Like if I'm going to tweet something, I'm going to put something out in the world, I kind of want to get a sense of like how it's going to land. Mm. And I think in that regard, I don't mind people being like quite upfront with like, oh, if you do that, it'll, it'll get down. But if you do that, like, I kind of don't mind it. I've, I guess I kind of feel that like if you hide that, at the end of the day, you make it harder to game it, which means that you ultimately put like there's more benefit in just trying to have good content no matter what the rules are. And by exposing it, you, you have people who say, well, then rather putting an interesting piece of content out there, a good tweet or something, I'm just going to think about what the best way is to hack the algorithm that I know exactly what it is. Agreed. I think that still works in Twitter's benefit. Like having people using and posting on Twitter still works for, for Twitter. The idea of like revealing this algorithm through the lens of transparency, I mean, that is a super technocratic value, right? And it doesn't address other issues that still exist on the platform. And I think that's often end game for these tech companies is if they've been transparent that's like the highest watermark of ethics and then that'll be the stopping point i, I think that i i don't know how they would then respond beyond this transparency point if people were like these are the issues with the algorithm from a civics point of view a moral point of view uh people should get outside more point of view whatever it is i don't you know um, I'm not sure that they would really have an adequate response to that from there based on the value system that governs that company. That is so interesting because you uh, the, the idea that transparency is the height of ethics is so, like, that is spot on. Like, it feels like, I feel like that makes so much sense of so many decisions that have been made, particularly with Twitter, 
right? Particularly with Twitter, it's like, well, if we're just, and, and Musk in general, if we're just, if I just say the thing that comes into my mind, yeah. if I just tell you everything, then somehow that kind of absolves all of the associated issues around this platform. That's the most Muskian uh, word I'm never going to say out loud again. <laughs> I regretted it as Muskie. soon as it came out. <laughs> Muskian thing I've ever heard. There That's we go. Muskian ethics 101. <laughs> Transparency is the highest order value. It's a really short book. Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name and Natasha Gillazo, journalist and Cam Wilson, associate editor with Crikey. Join me in studio. And if you looked at the top... <coughs> And if you looked at the US App Store in the last week, you would have seen a little app by the name of Lemon 8. And you would have thought, geez, that's a terrible name. (laughs) And you would have been right. But that app comes from the makers of TikTok, uh, China's ByteDance. And most people are saying it's their attempt at taking out Instagram. Is that true, Cam? Yeah, so the app is a kind of combination between Instagram and Pinterest and it has been slowly and quietly launched um, in the US and UK and reportedly uh, ByteDance has been paying Instagram, oh no, sorry, influencers from other platforms to post on the platform. I guess the kind of way of looking at it is, you know, it looks very similar um, to like an Instagram, you know, you're scrolling through your feed, but in it, it's kind of got different categories. So, you know, fashion, working out, like stuff like that. And most of the posts seem to encourage a kind of multiple photos and quite a bit of text. So that's a bit closer to something like Pinterest. From what I've heard, the kind of design of the app is around, I think what they call in China, the idea of um, growing grass, which is uh, a, a term that means to get influencers to review things so that then people will then buy them. So get people habituated and see products and understand how to use them. And so this is kind of being like quietly launched, obviously in the context of ByteDance having uh, some other quietly problems. launched into the top 10 of the US App Store. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, um, but having other problems at the moment, this is one of their kind of, uh, I guess, like backup plans. This comes, of course, in the shadow of like TikTok being banned on government devices in Australia and places around the world. Has there been any sense that Lemonade might encounter the same level of resistance? I don't think so. I mean, ByteDance produces, you know, ByteDance is a big company producing lots of different forms of technology. TikTok's been the big one that's had, you know, so much attention. To me, it's like it makes sense if you were building out a gamut of media and tech brands that you would be like, look what else is in the US market. Let's reflect that, but add a sort of more Chinese spin. Historically, Chinese social media has been far more tightly integrated with retail from the get-go. That's been added sort of later into a Pinterest and Instagram, which was more about design and social connection, first and foremost. They've always been more comfortable with that. So, um, I think it's probably good timing and it doesn't surprise me that like from the get-go they'll be selling things and it'll be a commercial app. Yeah. Um, and it feels like we're not, you know, I feel like we spent a long time talking about apps on the show where it was like, oh, it's really good, it's really useful and then you kind of look at it three years later and mm-hmm. go, yes, but how is it making money? Yeah, and well, they've like, clearly thought of that from the get-go. Well, I think tech companies in general have to think about it sooner. Like I feel like that the era of just living off like your venture capital money for like half a decade, it wouldn't hurt to think about how you're going to make money. <laughs> that R- wouldn't R- hurt. R.I.P. R- R- indie tech products though that were just <laughs> yeah. kind of like bunned and they yeah. were like, like a Tumblr or something. Something and like you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying they there shouldn't be things that don't have an obvious yeah. proper case. I'm just saying it wouldn't hurt for some <laughs> things to think about it 
soon enough. Mark wants to go back to zero interest rate uh, period. That's what you want return. No, I'm just like the child of a small business owner that like <laughs> vaguely cares about, you know, if you're going to spend years of your life hiring people, maybe have a plan for how it's going to make money and credit to ByteDance. That is that something. Plan that, is that, yeah, plan yeah, is yeah, that plan is there. That plan is there. That plan is there. Like it turns out I'm a raving capitalist who works a public broadcaster. <laughs> who knew? Um, where do you, like, obviously it's, it's uh, you saying it's soft launch in the US. Um, soft launch seems to be going quite well. Mm-hmm. Is that just a curious curiosity thing do you th- or do you think people will stick around Cam? I mean look it's, it's always an uphill battle and again something like Instagram and Pinterest as well they are they have like such penetration and replacing it and, and I can't see like a, I guess a killer uh, app difference between some of those other platforms uh, so we'll see I just think that you know I imagine ByteDance is trying to really promote this and its other applications uh, given that there may be a full ban of TikTok in the US um, and, and they are quite they've been very good at promoting these apps but I mean TikTok had been around for years and years I mean like years in the tech space like since 2018 and it was musically before that that's how it's managed to become one of the biggest platforms in the world so we'll have to give it a while until we see how popular it will be. Well, let's reconvene when that happens. And with that, we are out of time. <laughs> Huge thank you to our guests this week, Natasha Gilzo, journalist extraordinaire. That's right, I'm committing to it. <laughs> thank you for joining <laughs> us on Download This Show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and Cam Wilson, associate editor with Crikey. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to prefer. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.